This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, manufacturing contributes over $2.3 trillion to the U.S. economy with more than 12.8 million workers in the sector, according to the National Association of Manufacturers. Yet there is a disruption going on in the sector. The digital transformation that many companies embraced a few years ago is now becoming more a part of manufacturing. And a key component for these companies is something that our next guest calls servitization. It basically means changing the thought process from a product-driven company to that of a service-driven one. But it's a crucial component of future success for manufacturers. Jeff Cavanaugh is the head of Emphasis's Knowledge Institute, who is focused on this shift and the need for manufacturers to make this change. He joins us in our studios, along with Mukul Pandya, who is executive Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. Jeff, great to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, McCool. Always great to see you. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with the, this term servitization and, and where it has kind of come from. Well, the term was, was coined several years ago over in Cambridge, as people are looking at it there uh, in England. And, and the idea is manufacturing isn't just about products. And we always know that there are services around it. The transition to services, especially with the technologies and the, and the things that are driving it, servitization is thinking about things more as a, a longer-term relationship with a customer and not so much a one-time transaction. Uh, and it's really as simple as it sounds. It's more about services, less about the product itself. So uh, uh, Dan brought up uh, and, and, and what he said in the beginning that uh, there's a big disruption going on in manufacturing. Uh, how, how, how is manufacturing being disrupted and how, how does servitization play into that? When the first wave of the Internet hit, mostly consumers were affected. And yes, manufacturers wanted to put up a web page or needed to, but for the most part it was the, the retailers and the folks facing the consumer What's changed today is that this next wave is really the internet for industry, or the industrial internet, and, and the things that surround that. And combined with that, it's no longer a novelty to do the things that we take for granted on our smartphones or do things electronically. It's an expectation, and it's built into the business model. And there are organizations from garages to large companies you've never heard of around the world who are doing these things that can now reach into uh, previously protected economic moats or other markets. That's what's really happened. Manufacturing is no longer just about putting a bunch of sneakers or, or sheets of metal on, on a barge or a boat and going across oceans. It's about being able to 3D print a product somewhere. It's about being able to design something and test it before you ever go through that process. So the, the people that had all this experience and plants and assets that protected them from others entering, all of a sudden those are no longer an asset, in some cases a liability. And, and that's also the speed. In a world where it takes a long time to build a plant or a factory and set up these supply chains, you've got these factors or just disruptors that are happening much more quickly. And so that, that gap or that, that, that disconnect between the amount of time it takes to do something or change and yet the, the need to do so is forcing manufacturers to deal with problems they never had to before. And really, they've got to find new ways of addressing them. 
What might be a couple of examples of manufacturing companies that, that are doing some of the things that you just described? Well, they're, they're the obvious ones where instead of selling a product and not really knowing your, mark, your, 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 um, your ultimate customer, like in the automotive industry, you'd sell through a dealer. And realistically, except maybe through warranty, maybe, you wouldn't know who that customer was. Whereas now, spurred by the, the likes of Tesla and others, they're considering selling directly to a customer and having a relationship with that customer and downloading software of all things and charging them for services like, like, like OnStar pioneered and now Toyota and others have, have as well. That's one example. The other uh, company I worked with uh, several years ago, automotive seating, similar industry, but they're even farther removed. And yet they need to know the customer I would ask you, do you even know the, the manufacturer of that seat you sit on every day in your vehicle? Probably not. Right, yeah. And yet it may have maybe something that you interact with more than almost any other product because every single day you use it. And if that's the case, even though that probably was several thousand or several hundred dollars worth of value in that vehicle, it risks being a commodity. So how can that manufacturer, with its hundreds of plants around the world, make it? in a world where maybe that gets 3D printed in foam in some small office complex somewhere. So those are two examples. How do you think then then manufacturing is going to be impacted moving forward? If you're talking about realistically a, a significant shift in what manufacturing will be involved with moving forward. Like most challenges, there's an opportunity in there somewhere for someone. Um, I, I think first people have Companies have to not let go of their past, but embrace fresh thinking. So it isn't just let's build more plants, let's modernize the plants we have. It's also think about the fundamental relationship with the customer. There is this thing called information asymmetry mm -hmm. that custom, the companies have had, uh, where if you buy a product, it could be a bulldozer from, from likes of a Caterpillar. It could be some other household appliance, like a stove. Well, you own it, and you have this information, and the, the manufacturer doesn't. Well, what if through low-cost sensors and internet and, and integration, now the manufacturer knows about it? It can let you know when something might fail. It can let you know when maybe there's a, a change in regulation or compliance or safety, and it can let you know. So... That's one example where if it's valuable, they can keep that tether of a relationship much longer. You've had this appliance for two years, for three or five, maybe it's time to upgrade. Here's a coupon. It, there, there, all kinds of things. Maybe they serve up ads on the face of your refrigerator. You know, these are all ways that manufacturers can change the definition of what a product is, change the nature of their relationship, and even start to have value from the information itself that the product is generating. You gave a couple of wonderful examples earlier from the automotive industry, and I wonder if uh, other manufacturing, uh, other sectors in manufacturing also have seen similar, uh, you know, transformation by embedding services as part of their product mm -hmm. uh, strategies. So aviation, for example, is, is an industry that one often thinks about, or household goods, uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about what kind of value uh, manufacturers in these sectors uh, have 
seen as a, a benefits that they have experienced by changing to the ser- mm-hmm. servitization model? Well, possibly the first and certainly the classic example that must be in any discussion is the Rolls-Royce in aviation, selling power by the hour, I think was the phrase. Uh, and of course, Boeing, uh, the planes as well, where not only are you changing the economic model, um, you're also trying to measure things much more diagnostically and prescriptively so that you aren't just addressing problems or operating, you're also trying to prevent them. And I think that the phrase was, there's a terabyte of data a day per engine now being collected from the many sensors embedded. And that that, that information, I think, is a year plus old. Uh, so think about the sheer amount of information I think that's probably, you know, for where, where in safety is an issue or that's a big asset. It also something as small as um, Johnson Controls, a good example of smart buildings and air conditioning, all those, that equipment that you see in the top of your buildings and all the electronics within it. And not j- there's physical security. There's comfort. There's the, 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 um, the environment, making sure that you have the employees comfortable but also don't waste there, there are all kinds of, of, of data, even footfall, that you can collect that can be fed back. This isn't just manufacturing. Manufacturing now is touching many other industries where, where humans walk around and people interact. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined by Mukul Pandya, who's editor-in-chief and executive director of Knowledge at Wharton, and also Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Emphasis Knowledge Institute. We're talking about manufacturing and some of the disruptions that are in that sector right now. So with the benefits that that a lot of these sectors and all of these companies are are starting to see, Looking at it from the other side, are there risks as well that they need to be aware about? I can think of two in particular, maybe a third one. Uh, the first one is the, the, I'll call it the dark side of servitization, where taking advantage of technology, instrumenting, embedding, making all these wonderful things we just mentioned actually happen, doesn't guarantee you'll make any money. Let me repeat that. It doesn't guarantee you'll make any money. Right. Just because you can do something doesn't mean someone's willing to pay for it. One of the reasons why consumer apps are so uh, popular on phones is usually they're free, at least to pull you in, and then you pay for something. Think about a company with these massive plants, one, 10, dozen. I, one of our clients had 200 in the past, you know, several years ago. How do you introduce these new models and yet make money in the process? Or if you make a lot of money selling a product or a certain amount, you don't cannibalize that so fast <laughs> that you, the, the incremental subscription revenue or revenue over time isn't enough. That's one. The other is when these products, whether they're household or, or, or commercial or industrial, generate this data, who owns it? Um, as an aside, I've got a family farm, and as I work with the farmers, they generate all kinds of information and these manufacturers the John Deere's of the world, the Caterpillar's, the others, they, they want to get their hands on that data about soil and about the, the plants and the equipment and what's going through the combines and the planters. Guess what? They want that information from the farmers. The farmers say it's ours. And so how do you work in some kind of you know, value assessment or how do you evaluate or identify value for that? 
Same thing with your personal data, the, the, the life sciences companies, the pharma companies. Same thing if you have data at your house, the way you use a product. What do you own? So I think that's a challenge as well in this brave new world of connectivity. What are the boundaries? What are the responsibilities? And what are the legal ramifications? What can manufacturers do to mitigate some of these risks that you're describing uh, so that they don't have to remain on the dark side? First, don't abandon traditional economic or customer models as you race after the newest technological wonders. Embedded sensors and connectivity and cloud and AI aren't by themselves making this happen or, or will make you money. They're tools. So know your customer, uh, have transparency. That's an overused word, but have transparency and let people know there's not some nefarious agenda, which is why the social media companies have run into some trouble. Even if what they're doing overall is net positive, it can come across in a negative way. Who owns information? Why are you collecting this? And then also think hard about how to get on that same side of the table as your, your customer so it's, it's mo share the value. Find shared, you know, shared values. And the, other th the last thing is be creative and find new ways to excite people. And I think that's what's important, turn into experience. Is there an element of, of, of what you're talking about that we are seeing play out with Boeing right now with the issues that it's been dealing with with the MAX 737? Yes, and we've actually written about that somewhat uh, recently. It's, it's unfortunate that a, a proud company with 100-plus years of, anyone could say, a, if not spotless, at least very strong tr uh, track record, because of possibly an expedient decision uh, that they thought they could mitigate through a piece of technology uh, came back to haunt them. Literally two situations. Yeah. Maybe more can happen or could happen. Uh, it's absolutely, and I think it wasn't just the first act, it's the follow-up. Yep. And whether it's a failure of public relations or of systems thinking, because let's face it, we live in a world that it is so complex, very few of us really know what these systems are or how complex they are uh, around us. And that's just a fact. And so we look, and Anu McCool has talked about this before, that ultimately it comes down to trust and credibility. When you work with a company that does a complex thing that affects your life in some way, whether it's a vehicle or it's a aircraft or medicine, ultimately, beyond the price, you got to trust them. And I think it was probably a matter of trust that wasn't the priority. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the most common mistakes you've seen companies make when it comes to servitization? And uh, what lessons can be learned uh, from the way in which they dealt with those mistakes? One of them, one of the mistakes, I believe, was a reluctance to jump in, thinking it'd be mature and then they could just go do it. Mm -hmm. The companies that early on experimented and experimented frequently, they developed the scar tissue, they learned small mistakes, small wins, and they, they generated, they understood what worked for them, what worked in the factory, what worked on the shipping dock, what worked in the retail showroom. Then the second mistake I think people have made is even after they experimented, because sometimes, to be honest, people would hi highlight these proofs of concept to their leadership as victory. Well, that was initial victory, but they didn't scale. Uh, conferences where, where I've talked to industry leaders and interviews, 
that's the thing they struggled with. How do you scale the experiments, the proofs of concept? Because then you're dealing with things that aren't just technical, they're cultural, they cross organizational boundaries. And unless the very most, very, uh, most senior people in the company address it, you're down to silos and you're down to people competing maybe at the vice, different vice presidents or different organizational levels. Those are the two. And I think the last thing is continuing to evolve, make refinements, and keeping your eye both on the customer and the, uh, the economic model. Those are the three things I'm seeing. The, uh, uh, in re- reading some of the things you've written about this uh, topic, which is re- really interesting, uh, I-, I was struck by the fact that you also say that this approach to bundling products and services uh, also ties in with the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, can you explain how, th- how that connection happens? I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's something near and dear to my heart that beyond the the profits and beyond the the people, which are very important, the planet aspect or the broader aspect, uh, the 17 sustainable development goals, uh, I think number 12 is one on responsible consumption and production, relate to this circular economy. It's about not starving yourself or us doing without, but doing it responsibly. And the implication of servitization, the implication of having a longer-lasting asset that's updated through software or, or other means, means that we don't have to make and throw things away. Uh, and, and I think that holistic thinking not only will help our planet and help broader goals that everyone can get and should get behind, needs must get behind, it also can help companies think how can they have less inputs and get more outputs. And so I also think it's sustainable as a company because you just can't afford in these supply chains to have all the waste. So I think that's important. And then again, I want to emphasize the point. It's a goal we can all get behind, which in this day and time is important as well. Well, I would think that it's something that that it it, it works from a variety of, of of viewpoints, of angles, and the fact that uh, for the company's perspective, they are probably they're helping their company, but they're also helping their bottom line in the process. And the consumer gets behind it because they're seeing that a company is thinking it may be about the environment or it may be thinking about, you know, a variety of different aspects that are that are important to them. It is. In fact, you're going to see, you're already starting to see it in Europe, that over time, the annual reports and the requirements of companies by their governments will be, besides the profitability and, and the accounting standards, it will be the impact on their employees and working conditions, and it will be on the, the so-called environment and social and governmental aspects, governance aspects. That will be embedded. They won't be ancillary. You know, now most companies have their social uh, and, and governance environmental report, sustainability report. And, and what's going to happen is they'll all be together, that triple bottom line, people, profits, and planet. They'll be... It's like an income statement. You'll have those metrics. And the sooner people understand, companies understand these, I think that's going to be something that positions them to be successful in a future that you're right. People will decide who they do business with based upon these other factors. How close do you think we are getting to have having all three of those elements in sync, not just in spots around the world, but, but all around the world? Incrementally, it's, it's already begun. And the UN has, has taken the lead with it. The World Economic Forum is starting to adopt them. At Davos last year, I saw that. It was a little more prominent. I think there'll be a few uh, Northern European and Western European countries that will take it on. 
it'll probably be five years before it filters as requirements. But sometime in the 2020s, you'll even see it in the U.S. And, and at some point, there'll be a tipping point. But I believe the companies that do business globally have to be thinking about it now or else they'll have this two-tiered model they'll have to have in the future. Uh, just one last question, uh, Jeff, and that is for companies that, for manufacturers that have not yet begun this journey, uh, what do you think would be good first steps? Where should they start? I think there's a, a bifurcated approach. On the one hand, take a fresh look at their relationship with their customers and their products and what can they do. They already will have services, warranties, maintenance, training, installation. They have these things. So just think about taking the baby step. Think about that next step, formalizing a framework. The other is make sure that the foundational elements are in place so that when they try doing these interconnected digital transformative initiatives, that they have the basics in place. Do the systems talk to another? Are they going down a path where they embed the sensors in their plants and they can talk to their, their trading partners? Because if you don't have that, when you do make the bigger decisions, it won't matter because you'll be dead in the water until the foundation's in place. I think those two things will get them started. But it probably also has to be not only between companies within a sector, but companies cross sectors as well, correct? Yes, and you're seeing consortiums and partnerships develop where a building manufacturer or lease uh, with, with an air conditioning manufacturer and a, an office furniture and systems, systems integrator, you're coming together with these, these complementary partnerships, much like a retailer and a consumer goods companies used to partner in the past, you, you're starting to see that play out as well. Absolutely. Great having you with us today, Jeff. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you. McCall, as always, great to see you. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. Jeff Kavanaugh, who is head of Emphasis Knowledge Institute, joining me here in studio, along with Mukul Pandya, who is editor-in-chief and executive director of Knowledge at Wharton. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 